Well, this morning, friends, uh, we're going to be starting a new sermon series here at Lakes Free Church. It's a series I've been excited about for some time, and I think uh, we're going to find it to be very practical and very relevant uh, for the times that we find ourselves in today. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I have been anxiously looking forward to the arrival of spring and uh, the start of fishing season. Uh, I've shared some stories over the years, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of fishing. I love going out on the lakes and getting the boat in the water. And uh, yesterday I saw people at the boat launches here in town uh, putting their boats out, getting their docks in. It's, uh, it's an exciting time of year for those of us here in Minnesota who love being out in nature and out on the water. I was thinking this past week of some of my favorite memories of uh, fishing and different fishing trips I've been on over the years. One of the, one of the stories that came to mind this week as I was watching people putting their boats into the lakes uh, was a time that I was up on Rainy Lake uh, with a close, uh, with some close family friends of ours. Uh, it was my, uh, my best friend Scott and his family and, and uh, we were up there for about a week to do some fishing together. And one afternoon, as we had uh, prepared to go out and do some fishing, it was going to be Scott and his dad and myself and my dad. Uh, we went down to the dock and uh, started loading up our gear in the fishing boat that we were going to be taking out that afternoon. But uh, on this particular day, it was pretty windy out. Uh, the waves were, were uh, pretty pretty large on the lake. And as we were loading the boat, we didn't realize, but the the tie down where we had uh, tied the boat to the dock had come loose. And so we're loading our gear. And in the meantime, this small aluminum fishing boat uh, weighed down with all of our equipment, all of our gear started slowly drifting away from the dock. Well, as soon as we realized this, my friend Scott, his dad, uh, rushed to the edge of the dock and leaned out over the dock to grab the boat. Now, uh, Al, he's a, he's a big guy, a big tall guy, strong guy, but, uh, it was a, it was a ferocious windy day. And, uh, those waves were just blowing that fishing boat further and further away from the dock. Well, before you know it, friends, uh, my friend's dad, Al, he is leaning over the side of the dock, over the edge of the lake, hanging on for dear life to this fishing boat that is slowly drifting further and further away. And in a matter of a second or two, pretty soon Al is literally spread out, uh, bridged over the water, hanging on to the boat, his feet dangling on the edge of the dock. And in that moment, all of us watching were thinking, all right, this is either going to end up in one of two ways here. Either Al is going to make this amazing heroic rescue of this fishing boat, or he's going swimming. Well, Al's hanging on for dear life, trying to pull that fishing boat in. Pretty soon, he starts stretching further and further out over the water. His body is almost perfectly horizontal. And in that instant, Al turned his head and looked back at us and said three words. I'm going in. And he dropped and with a huge splash, fell into the cold waters of Rainy Lake. It was one of the funniest things. I had ever seen and one of my all-time favorite fishing memories. Well, friends, as I thought about that story this week, it, it got me wondering if, if any of you have ever found yourselves in a predicament like that, caught in the midst of a precarious situation, a, a situation that could easily go one way or the other. 
Have you ever been in a difficult situation like that? Well, this was the reality facing the churches in the first century in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, that we're going to be studying here together in the coming weeks. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be starting a new sermon series here, going through the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 3, where Jesus, through the Apostle John, communicated letters to seven churches throughout Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, important churches in the ancient world in the first century. And Jesus had a message for each of these churches. Uh, Our sermon series is titled, Warning, Church at Risk. And you see, the reason I titled the series that way is because each of these seven churches found themselves in very precarious situations, dangerous situations where, where these churches could have easily gone one way or the other. They could have pursued ongoing fidelity and faithfulness to the Lord, or they could have easily found themselves falling, falling with a crash in, in faithlessness or, or other dangers that they were facing in those days. But as we're going to see over the coming weeks, the seven dangers facing the churches in Revelation, the seven churches here in Asia, these are dangers that every church faces, that every Christian faces, dangers that we too need to be on guard against. And these are dangers facing all of us in all generations. This isn't just a timely message for for the churches in the first century that Jesus was communicating to. But it's a timely message for us as well today. Well, this morning, I want to share a little bit of background on the book of Revelation, and specifically these seven letters that we're going to be studying in the coming weeks. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. It was written around 95 AD, and John at this time was the last of the 12 disciples. The last of the living 12 disciples, the rest had all passed away. Most of them martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And John, now as an old man, had been serving the church in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. It was a time of great persecution for the church. And John, around 95, had been exiled to an island called Patmos, 50 miles offshore from Ephesus. It was a Roman penal colony, a barren island, 10 miles by 6 miles across. And it was a harsh environment, a barren, rocky island. And here John, as this old man, is on exile, sent there, as a, as a form of persecution to squelch the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it was during his time there on the island of Patmos that the Apostle John received a revelation from Jesus Christ. The revelation that we today know as the book of Revelation. Many of us recognize Revelation for its end times prophecy. But Revelation also contained a word of exhortation for the churches of John's day, the churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century, in the mid-90s A.D. And we're going to see this revelation that Jesus Christ gave to his churches, these seven churches specifically in Asia Minor. If you look on your screen, you'll see the map of the area that we're talking about here over the next few weeks. You can see the island of Patmos there, 50 miles off the coast of Turkey, present-day Turkey. 
And there are the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And Jesus had a message for each of these churches. See, they were each facing unique risks, unique challenges. They were each at danger, neglected priorities, spiritual compromise, losing faith, facing persecution, immorality in the church, and and much more. These were all situations that these churches were dealing with. And you know something, friends, in troubling times, and times of spiritual turmoil, the thing we most need is a clear vision of Jesus Christ. And friends, Jesus gives his church a vision of who he is in his resurrected, ascended, eternal glory. We're going to see an incredible vision of Jesus Christ, a vision that God gave his people for their encouragement. But friends, Jesus doesn't just give his church a vision here in Revelations 1 through 3. He also gives his church a message. He gives us a message. It's a timeless message. We all know about Revelation's message about the future and and the end times prophetic vision. But God also has a prophetic word for his church today. You see, Jesus was communicating to these seven churches, real churches, dealing with real trials, real hardships, real dangers. But this message that he gives, this exhortation that he gives to the churches of John's day, in the late 90s AD, is a message that applies to all churches and all believers throughout all of history. It's just as timely, just as relevant, just as important for each of us today. And so I'm, in, I'm excited about this sermon series. I think it's going to be both a challenging series, but hopefully an encouraging one for us as we too seek to live faithfully for the Lord in, in the difficult days that we find ourselves in as well. Now, this morning, as we begin our series, I want to read for us Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We're going to look today at the vision of Jesus Christ that he gave to John for the sake of his churches. But then we're going to begin to look at his first letter, his first message to the church in Ephesus. Let's take a look at this passage together this morning. Revelations chapter 1, starting in verse 9 through chapter 2, verse 7. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth and out came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, friends, there's a lot here in this passage. It starts out with this vision John received of Jesus Christ in his exalted, glorified state. And then Jesus goes on to encourage John to write down the words that he was going to communicate and send these messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He begins with his letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, as I said, there's a lot here in this passage. And tomorrow, if you join us Monday evening for our pastor study at 7 p.m., we're going to spend some more time looking at John's vision of Jesus Christ and some of the meaning here. What is What does this mean that Jesus holds the seven stars and that he walks among the lampstands that are the seven churches? We're going to talk about what John saw here in his vision of Jesus Christ. But this morning... And for the sake of our series, I want to focus on Jesus' message, his letter to the church in Ephesus. Because, as I said earlier this morning, Ephesus was one of these seven churches that was at great risk. And we see that reflected here in our passage this morning. Jesus had a message for this church. It's a message that is relevant for us as well today. Let me make three observations about our passage here in Revelations chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus offers, number one, a praise for his people. Jesus offers a word of praise for his people there in the church in Ephesus. You know, friends, Ephesus at the end of the first century was not an easy place to be a Christian. The, the church in Ephesus had a very unique dynamic and very unique challenges that they were facing. Ephesus at this time and the end of the first century was really the commercial and cultural center of Asia. It, it was a major crossroads in the Roman Empire. 
It, it was, if you will, the crossroads between Europe and, and Asia and the Middle East. It was a major port city as well. And so for all of these reasons, it was a very central cultural hub of the Roman Empire. One historian called it the Vanity Fair of Asia in the first century. And so you can just imagine the the climate that these early Christians there in Ephesus found themselves in. It it was a climate full of religious pluralism and paganism, and, and immorality was widespread and rampant. There in Ephesus, there was a famous temple, the temple to Artemis, the, the Greek god Artemis, also known as Diana, the Roman god Diana. This was a fertility god. The, the temple of Artemis, as you see in the picture on your screen, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an incredible structure. And inside this temple, there were a thousand religious prostitutes who served the fertility god Artemis or Diana. Friends, can you imagine the kind of immorality that must have been present in that culture? A, a religion centered around a temple with a thousand temple prostitutes. Immorality was widespread here in the land of Ephesus. Not only did they have these challenges to deal with, but they were under intense persecution from the Roman Empire. You see, in the 90s AD, the Roman Emperor Domitian had instituted an empire-wide crackdown and persecution against the Christian church. There was an imperial cult at this time where the Roman Empire had devolved to such a place where they had begun to worship the emperor as God. And the emperor Domitian, unique among all the Roman emperors especially, even worse than Nero, had instituted a crackdown against the church. This is probably why the Apostle John had been exiled to Patmos because of his leadership and preaching there in Ephesus and in these seven churches in the area of Asia Minor. Domitian had sent him out to Patmos to to get rid of him, to, to squelch the message of Christianity. It was no easy task being a Christian in first century Ephesus. But friends, as we see here in our passage this morning, this is a church that had stood strong in the midst of this difficult environment. And here in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, at the outset of his message to them, Jesus offers a word of praise, a word of encouragement to the church in Ephesus. Let, let me read for us again what Jesus says, his, his words of praise to the people in Ephesus, the church there in Ephesus. In verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus offers these incredible words of encouragement, words of praise and commendation to the church in Ephesus. I want to highlight for us this morning here, Jesus commends the Ephesian church in five ways. He, He commends them, number one, for their hard work. He says, I know your works, your toil. And friends, I wonder if the church in Ephesus over the years hadn't taken the apostle Paul's words to heart. His letter that he had written in 62 AD to the Philippian church, which would have circulated to the other churches of that day and age. 
Philippians 2.12, the Apostle Paul, if you remember, declared, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And friends, the Ephesian Christians were a church that were working hard on behalf of the Lord. They were working diligently on behalf of the Lord. This was no twice-a-year church, friends. This was not a group of Christians that simply met on Sundays and then went about living their lives any other way the other, the other six days of the week. These were faithful, diligent, hard-working Christians. Secondly, Jesus commends them for their perseverance. He says, I know your patient endurance. Friends, these were Christians who were persevering, who were running the race faithfully. In Philippians 3, 13 through 14, the Apostle Paul encourages us to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. These Ephesian Christians had obviously taken that challenge to heart, taken that message to heart. They were persevering, pressing on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus then commends them thirdly for resisting sin in this culture of rampant immorality in a city with one of the seven wonders of the world dedicated to a fertility goddess with a thousand temple prostitutes. These people had resisted a lifestyle of sin. They had turned away from sin. Paul says you cannot bear with, or, or John writing his revelation from Jesus says you cannot bear with those who are evil. They had stood fast against sin. As the, as the Apostle Paul wrote to this very same church 30 years earlier, <clears throat> Paul writing to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 5.11 had told them, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And friends, this was a church that had taken that admonition to heart. They had fought against sin and resisted sin. Jesus then, fourthly, commends them for their discernment. He says, he says, not only had they had resisted sin, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Friends, this was a church that was standing fast on the truth of God's word. They tested those who came to them claiming to speak for Jesus. They tested them by the truth of God's word. They were Christians who had taken Jesus' brother Jude, his admonition in Jude 3 to heart, to contend earnestly for the faith, once for all entrusted to the saints. This was a church of contenders. We, we see a firsthand example of this in verse 6 of our passage where Jesus praises them for resisting the work of the Nicolaitans. He says, this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Friends, who were the Nicolaitans here? The Nicolaitans were a first century cult of Christianity. Church tradition, church history tells us that this cult grew from a man named Nicholas of Antioch. If you remember in Acts chapter 6, Nicholas of Antioch was one of the first seven deacons in the early church. He started out as a legitimate minister of Jesus Christ, serving the church. But somewhere along the way, Nicholas had gone wrong. He had developed his own warped and twisted theology. He began to teach that the flesh doesn't matter. What matters is the spirit inside of you. And so as long as you're taking care of your spirit, you can do whatever you want in the flesh. 
It, it was very similar to the Gnostic heresy going around in this day and age. And so the Nicolaitans basically claimed to be Christians, but their lives looked no different from the pagan immorality around them. They lived in pursuit of fleshly pleasure. And Jesus says that this church in Ephesus had resisted these people. They had called them what they were, false apostles, and they had stood fast on the promises of God's word. Fifthly, Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for their trust. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. This was a church walking in faith and in trust of the Lord. They were a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 kind of a church, trusting in the Lord with all their hearts, leaning not on their own understanding. In, in all their ways, no matter their circumstances, they kept their eyes on Jesus, and he was making their path straight through this very difficult culture in which they lived. This was a great church, friends. And what we see here in Jesus' commendation of the church in Ephesus is all of these characteristics reveal a church that was dutiful in good works, quick to recognize sin and error in their midst, and willing to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. You know, friends, in many ways, this was a model church. I mean, so much to praise and commend here. What a blessing it must have been for this church to receive this word of praise from their king, Jesus. What, what an encouragement to receive the Lord's commendation. I wonder, friends, would the Lord praise our church in these same ways? Would the Lord look at Lakes Free Church and commend us in these same ways for our, for our good works, for our faithful endurance, for our discernment? Would Jesus praise us? You know, friends, we should pray. We should pray that God would give us the grace to, to live out these very same characteristics in our lives and as a church. Now, what we've seen so far, and from what we've seen so far, it, it would literally be hard to imagine a more committed church than the one we see here in Ephesus. I, I mean, all of these characteristics that Jesus commends, but friends, as we're going to discover, not all was well with the church in Ephesus. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before of maybe when you, you go to the doctor for a checkup and, and during your checkup, maybe a physical, you, you go in thinking everything's fine. Outwardly, everything looks good. You feel strong. You feel healthy. But as the doctor does your physical or does your checkup, the doctor says to you, I have some difficult news. Or I have some bad news. I've discovered something here. I, I, I remember six years ago when my wife was first diagnosed with cancer. And, and I remember one of the reasons that diagnosis was so hard and difficult was because it was such a shocking diagnosis. My, my wife had gone into the doctor for, for her routine checkup and, and outwardly she looked good. She was beautiful. She was strong. She was healthy. She, she exercised regularly. She ate a good diet. I mean, outwardly, everything about her looked great. But inside, inside, something was very wrong. And in the same way, the Ephesian church also had something very wrong underneath all of the externals that Jesus commended and praised them for. 
See, there was a cancer growing inside underneath the surface of the church in Ephesus. And this leads me to our second observation this morning. Jesus offers the church in Ephesus a correction, a correction for the congregation. Let me read verse 4. After commending the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, but I have this against you. After all of that praise, after all of that commendation, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had abandoned the love that they once had. What a difficult diagnosis to hear from our great physician, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They had abandoned love. The righteous brothers once saying, you've lost that loving feeling. But friends, I bet you didn't know Jesus was the first one to write those lyrics. You've lost that loving feeling, he says to the church in Ephesus. They had done so much right, and yet, somewhere along the way, they had lost that loving feeling. They had forgotten the most crucial part of what it means to be God's people. They had abandoned love. It it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Friends, this was the problem facing the church in Ephesus. They were doing all of these great deeds on behalf of Christ. They were persevering in the face of persecution for the sake of Christ. They were toiling hard for Christ, and yet they had abandoned love. But friends, what exactly does this mean? What does it mean to abandon love? You know, to abandon love is serious business. You see, love is the central calling of the Christian. And when a Christian abandons love, friends, it doesn't get much more serious than that. Jesus was once asked by the religious leaders in Israel, what what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? You might recall his answer in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Jesus says the, the greatest commandment, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus said the greatest commandment for a Christian is to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and then to love others as we love ourselves. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The apostle John in his letter in 1 John echoes the words of Jesus. In 1 John 4, 7 through 10, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, John says, if you don't have love, you don't know God, because God is love. And so God's people should live out love as a response to God's love for us. Jesus, on the night of his arrest and trials and ultimate crucifixion, said to his disciples in John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, understand this this morning. If you're a Christian, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to abandon love is to risk losing our very identity as God's people. This was a serious word of warning and correction that Jesus is offering here to the church in Ephesus. What are some of the marks of a church that's abandoned love? We, we don't exactly know what this looked like in Ephesus in the first century, but I can imagine knowing some of the marks of a, of a church that abandoned love, what, what maybe the Ephesian Christians had fallen into. Maybe a joyless worship simply going through the motions when they came together for worship. They had lost their love for the Lord. And worship became a routine, a ritual. To, to abandon love sometimes looks like a person striving to earn God's approval versus serving from God's approval. Maybe this is what the Ephesians were wrestling with. Maybe they were struggling with a spirit of pride. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. How many Christians over the years have increased in their spiritual knowledge and they know hundreds of Bible verses by heart and they can share and recite good theological truths and they end up becoming very spiritually prideful people because of how much they know, but they lack love for others. Sometimes those who abandon love fall into a judgmental spirit a hypocritical judgmentalism where they're quick to condemn everyone else's sin while failing to acknowledge their own. Maybe that's what the Ephesians were wrestling with. Maybe for the Ephesians, abandoning love was about majoring on the minors, focusing on peripheral theological issues and politics and lifestyle and social issues and morality issues instead of looking first and foremost to the gospel and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. How many Christians fall into that trap, friends? To abandon love can also be about embracing a self-centered mindset, a a me-first mentality, a me-first attitude that says, what's in it for me? And it becomes all about fulfilling our own personal wants and needs. And we abandon love for God and for others. To abandon love also sometimes can look like forgetting our call to care for the least of these among us. We forget our call to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the needy and the hurt and the downtrodden in our world. Again, friends, I don't know what exactly abandoning love looked like for these Christians in Ephesus, but all of these are very real and present dangers for the church. They're real and present dangers for us as well today. It's very easy to abandon love. 
And I want you to notice the consequence of this, friends. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 5. Jesus says, if you do not repent and change course, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Earlier, Jesus says that he walked among the seven lampstands, which were symbols of the seven churches. Jesus was there in their midst, in their presence. But Jesus says, look it, if you fail to repent of, of abandoning love, Jesus says, I'm going to take your lampstand and I'm going to remove it. What does that mean? It means that the Lord will remove his hand of blessing from that church. It means that that church is at risk of, of losing their identity, of losing their place in the kingdom as a church of the Lord. Friends, do you know that? That God will judge his church for infidelity. And he will remove a lampstand from a church that fails to shine the light of love in this world. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus told his followers, you are the light of the world. Christians, church, we are supposed to shine the light of Jesus to a lost and dying world. We do that by displaying the Lord's love. And yet, friends, a lamp that doesn't shine the light of love is a worthless lamp. It's no good. And Jesus says it's a lamp that's at risk of losing its place, of losing God's hand of blessing. But I want you to notice something here, friends. There's also a message of hope here in our passage. See, Jesus doesn't just condemn his church with a fatal diagnosis. He also provides a prescription for their correction. Look at verse 5a once again. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What is the Lord's prescription for a church that has abandoned love, a loveless church? It's a three-part prescription, three R's. Number one, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, remember, remember from where you have fallen. I've counseled Dozens and dozens of couples over the years as a pastor, couples struggling in their marriages. One of the common things that I do in my marriage counseling with couples is I ask them to remember, to remember what first caused you to fall in love with one another. Remember what attracted you to one another in the beginning. Remember what did you do at first in in your pursuit of one another. You got to remember. You need to remember where you once were. And look to that as your source of encouragement, uh, of your source of hope to get back to that. And here Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, remember where you once were, where you have fallen from. You know, friends, 30 years earlier, just 30 years earlier, the Apostle Paul had written to this very same church in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, the Apostle Paul commends this church. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Friends, only 30 years earlier, this was a church known for their love, praised for their love. And yet in 30 years, something had happened. They had abandoned the love they once had. Jesus calls them to remember. Secondly, in his prescription for a loveless church, he calls them to repent. He says, remember, but repent. 
Repent for falling away from your love for the Lord and your love for others. The word repent, friends, means to change course. It's a 180 degree change of direction. And when we sin, no matter what sin it is, We need to repent. We need to turn course. We need to go from our way of rebellion against God to turn in pursuit of faithfulness to God. The Apostle John in his letter, 1 John 1, 9, says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, friends, that's what repentance looks like. It's confession of our sins. It's turning away from our rebellion to pursue fidelity to the Lord. And it's receiving the cleansing forgiveness that God promises to anyone who turns to him in a spirit of repentance. Thirdly, in his prescription for a loveless church, Jesus tells them to repeat. He says, remember, repent. And number three, repeat. In other words, do the works you did at first. What works is Jesus talking about? The work of love, friends. He's calling them to return to love. How do we return to love? Friends, we got to keep our eyes on the gospel. How do we foster love for God and love for others? We keep our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to look to the cross. You know, here at Lakes Free over the years, we've had a famous statement. We say that the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Friends, the main thing is the gospel. We need to look to the gospel. We need to look to the cross. We need to look to Jesus, our glorious Savior, and his amazing grace. And as we look to Jesus and his amazing grace in going to the cross on behalf of our sins to provide forgiveness for us, We begin to fall more in love with Jesus when we recognize all he's done for us. And as we fall more in love for Jesus, friends, pretty soon his love so overwhelms us that it begins to abound within us and overflow out from us and spill out onto others. Yesterday, my kids and I did an at-home science experiment. We we had purchased a two-liter bottle of Diet Coke, and my son Caleb had recently got this uh, this science experiment where you use Mentos candy, Mentos breath mints, and you drop them through this tube, about six to eight of these Mentos in this tube, and there's a little trigger that you pull, and when the Mentos drop into the bottle of Coke, there's a chemical reaction, and within an instant, that chemical reaction, the carbon dioxide mingling with the Mentos, shoots a geyser of Diet Coke 20 feet up into the air. Friends, this is what it means to return to love, to do the works you did at first. We look at the gospel. We we let the love of Jesus and the joy we find in the gospel well up within us, and it begins to abound within us, and it then blows up and spills out onto others. This is how the gospel produces love in our lives. Friends, fill yourself with the gospel. Treasure Christ. Fall in love with Christ. Let his love well up within you. And then it will spill out onto others. This is Christ's prescription for a loveless church. If we're going to be a church that's known for our love, friends, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Thirdly, in our passage this morning, Jesus offers the church in Ephesus 
a future for the faithful. What a great way to end our passage this morning. An incredible word of encouragement. In verse 7, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, friends, this is a message for any Christian who ever hears this letter to the Ephesians. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is a timeless message. It applies to all of us. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Friends, this is the reward for those who hear and heed the Lord's message. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant them to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word conquers there, friends, is the Greek word nikau. It it means to overcome, to be victorious. It's an athletic term. It's about a a runner who runs the race and, and finishes the course and wins victoriously. This is the word where we get our English word Nike from. Why does Nike, the sporting goods equipment company, use that word? It comes from the Greek word, nikau, to be a victor, to be a conqueror, to be victorious. And Jesus says, this is the reward for all him faithfully. Victory, conquerors, the, the joy and privilege of eating from the tree of life in paradise with God. Here, Jesus is pointing us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, where God had placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. There in the garden, God had given them paradise on earth. He had given them a tree of life to eat from, which would have allowed them to live forever in his presence. But Adam and Eve chose rebellion against God. They chose to eat from the one tree that God had forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of their rebellion against God, the Lord banished them from the Garden of Eden. They fell into a life of sin, a a fall from grace. And they were condemned to a life of toil and hardship and sickness and disease and ultimately death. But you know something, friends, what Adam and Eve lost because of sin, we can regain through Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus asked, do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, friends, for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we too can be conquerors. We too can know the hope and promise of eternal life in paradise, in the presence of God, eating from the tree of life for all of eternity in God's very presence. You know, I was thinking this week, why do so many people in our world today find themselves gripped by fear? The fear of the coronavirus, the fear of climate change, the fear of cancer. Why are so many people gripped with fear by all of these things? It's because they don't have an eternal hope. They don't have an assurance beyond the grave. They don't have the promise of paradise. But I'll tell you something, friends, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, for those who turn to him by faith, repenting of their sins and asking him to cleanse them of all unrighteousness, 
to walk in a new and saving relationship with him as their Lord and Savior. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, for the one who conquers, there is hope. There is a future for the faithful. There is a tree of life in paradise with God. See, friends, that's the Lord's promise to each and every one of you watching today. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Have you heard that message? Have you embraced that message? Are you living your life in pursuit of faithfulness to Jesus Christ? If so, friends, you too can be a conqueror. You too can have the assurance of paradise with God. Hold fast to that promise. Trust in that promise and be a conqueror in Jesus Christ. What a great word of encouragement. Great word of counsel for us. Given to a church 2,000 years ago, but timeless truths as important for us today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revelation to this church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And we thank you, Jesus, that the encouragements and admonitions and exhortations that you gave to this church are just as meaningful and important for us today. Lord, I pray that here at Lakes Free, we would be a people known not only for our good works and our perseverance and our faith, but that we would be a people known for keeping the first thing first. Our love for you and our love for others a love which is rooted in the gospel and overflows out of our joy for what you have done for us. God, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus and his amazing grace. And Lord, may your love for us overwhelm us, abound within us, and ultimately overflow and spill out to others. We thank you, Lord, for these great words. I pray, God, that we would embrace them with all of our hearts and that we would seek to live out this kind of love in our own lives. We thank you for your precious promises, the hope of eternal life, the hope of victory in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, I want to just share with you before we end this morning, if there is anything we can do for you, if there is any way that we can be praying for you, I'd encourage you to go to the Lakes Free website. There's a prayer link there right on our homepage. And you can fill that out, and we would love to pray with you. We would love to talk with you if, if you need anything. In fact, if you email me at jasoncarlson at lakesfree.org, I, I'd be glad to give you a call. If your family would like to set up a Zoom call with me this week, I'd love to see your faces and have a brief word of prayer with you, even if it's just over, over online access. We miss you, church. We love you. You're in our prayers. And I just want you to know we're here for you. I want to leave you with these words from Revelation chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God bless you.